0: Why don't I pray to start with and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you've brought us together this evening and we pray that you might speak to us very clearly by your word. Father, we pray that you will work by your spirit in our hearts. Please help us to see the Lord Jesus and the the glorious uh, forgiveness that he offers in his name. Amen. Now, there are times when you realise that some things are just not up to scratch. They don't even meet the minimum standard. So my mother-in-law discovered as she was eating her way through a takeaway sandwich and midway through, she found a Band-Aid inside. (laughs) Now, sometimes it's more serious than that. After all, where would a current affair be without a story about the shonky tradesman or builder delivering workmanship that just isn't up to a reasonable standard? And let me say that cheap toilet paper really proves the old saying, you get what you pay for. And I'll be honest, sometimes my jokes don't even meet a minimum standard. But the far more serious question for us tonight is just this, will we measure up to God's standard? And that's the issue in this wonderful part of scripture, which was read for us before from Romans chapter 3. Now, if you've just read through the passage perhaps for the first time and felt your eyes glazing over, just hang in there. Although it's dense and it's really packed with a lot of theological terms, I hope that by the end of tonight you might see how it hangs together. You may also see why Martin Luther called this passage the chief point and the very central place of the whole Bible. Did you notice as May was reading that for us, There, ...that the most frequent word used is the term righteousness. The term is there four times in six verses. And in fact it's there more frequently than we can see, obviously... ...because our English language isn't quite flexible enough... ...to cover the different Greek forms of the word righteous. So we also have the term justify... ...which kind of means make righteous, occurring twice... ...and the term just or righteous appearing once. So understanding the term righteousness is, if you like, a skeleton key, which will open up the entire passage to us. And perhaps to start with, the best way to understand that concept of righteousness is to think about God's righteousness. Now, the Old Testament teaches that God, God's righteousness is his moral perfection, it's his goodness. He is righteous because he's honest. He is completely faithful and he won't forget the promises that he has made. He is also righteous because he is compassionate. He looks on the oppressed, the vulnerable, and he has mercy towards them. But God is also righteous because he is just. He gives people exactly what they deserve. He upholds the good and he is opposed to what is wrong. God's standard, if you like, reflects his character, that he is righteous Well, do people measure up to that righteous standard? And that's the question answered by Paul's argument in the large block of material from 1 verse 18 through to 3 verse 20 that's immediately before our passage. But Paul spells out the conclusion there in 3 verse 9. Can you see it there in 3 verse 9? What shall we conclude then? Are we, that is Jews, any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. What do you think that conclusion means? What do you think it means to be under sin? In medicine, it's important to get the diagnosis right. If the assessment and the diagnosis isn't right, the treatment is going to be wrong. And here in Romans, the point is that unless you can actually see the human predicament, that is, the lostness of people in their rebellion against God, it's actually very difficult to appreciate the solution that Paul lays out. Not only does the Bible insist there is such a thing as sin, it insists that the heart of its offensiveness is how we treat God. And to demonstrate this point, he quotes from the Old Testament. You'll see it there in verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands No one who seeks God. All have turned away. Now notice here that sin is about much more than just bad behaviour. It isn't primarily about breaking bad, you know, about quitting your day job to become a drug lord. No, it's actually best understood as being about a relationship that we have with God. It's an underlying attitude in us that's reflected in our lifestyle. We don't seek him. We abandon any sense of gratitude to him and we care nothing for what brings glory to God. It's not our ignorance that's the issue. It's that we ignore him. So we are not righteous. We fall short of that standard. Moral perfection is not found in people, not in their attitude to God or in their behaviour. So if sin is essentially about our relationship with God, then what does it mean to be under sin? Why does he talk about it like that? Under means that sin holds us in slavery. Our present reality is an enslavement. God has given us over to things that shouldn't be done. Our future is enslavement. Because sin will dominate us, bringing us death and facing God's wrath. So here's the diagnosis, and it's terrible, isn't it? There's just no nice way to put it. We are unrighteous people who will have to give an account to a righteous God. We all fall short of the standard. I've been a Christian now for 20 years, and I still find this really confronting. At this point, Paul's argument clashes powerfully with the modern mindset, doesn't it? Now, perhaps that's a function of our society's view of tolerance. The one wrong thing to say is that someone else is wrong. A god of wrath sounds, I don't know, a bit outdated, psychologically primitive. But when you think about it, it's a principle of any justice system, any justice system anywhere, that you cannot declare someone to be innocent when they are guilty. It wouldn't be a justice system if it couldn't sort that out. And in God's universe, things are no different. The righteous God condemns the unrighteous. As John Stott summarised with his usual clarity, God's wrath is his antagonism to evil in all of its manifestations. Perhaps like me, you followed that tragic and awful story of Jill Maher. She was a young woman in Melbourne who was killed after a night out in Melbourne around 12 months ago, as there are children in the audience, in fact mine. um, I don't want to repeat the details of the case, but many of you will know that already. What's troubling about it all is that was one life and one person. See, friends, we've come to the end of the 20th century and the scale of murder has been unprecedented. We don't have time tonight to pursue the details of wars, of mass starvation, of labour camps, of genocide. And what will we say? That it doesn't matter? Because there is a righteous judge and it is right that he should oppose what is evil. And our moral indifference is not the great virtue that we sometimes imagine it to be. But where does that leave you and me? Because we're people who aren't up up to scratch either. And that is where we pick up the wonderful news of this passage in Romans chapter 3. After the long dark night, a new day has dawned. And over against God's wrath, we see that God gives us a righteousness that we do not have on our own. So please follow it with me carefully there in verse 21. We read, but now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. There are no two more wonderful words in scripture, but now. But now, God himself provides a gift of righteousness. It was Martin Luther, as many of you will know, who saw this clearly. And some of you will know the story. But whenever he came across the phrase the righteousness of God in scripture, it simply terrified him because he knew that he was an unrighteous sinner who fell short of God's commands. But as he reflected on Romans, he understood that righteousness from God meant something completely different. In fact, God gives his righteousness as a gift in Christ. It's a righteous status. It's from outside us. It's alien It's the basis for a whole new relationship. Do you see the point? God meets our profoundest need as unrighteous people with a righteousness that is not naturally ours. You and I measure up to the standard because God's actually able to give it to us. The clue to that understanding is there where it reads, the law and the prophets testify to it. Isn't that the idea in the Old Testament? that guilt can be transferred so that God's people can be fit to live with him? Isn't that the idea behind the Passover lamb, not to mention the entire sacrificial system? Isn't that what we read of the servant in Isaiah 53, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him? You see, it's more than an academic issue. The key issue, as Paul's framed it for us, is whether Jews and Gentiles will or will not meet the standard before God's throne of judgment? That's the issue. And the answer is that God is able to offer a gift of righteousness to unrighteous people like you and me, so we can perfectly meet that standard. If this righteousness comes from outside us, then how on earth do we receive it? And Paul explains it there in verse 22, that there is no other means than faith in Christ Christ. We read there, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, the media love to call believers simpletons because we rely on faith. But faith isn't blind optimism. It's not simply being religious, whatever that means. Faith is the simple trust in a reliable person or thing. It means to rely or depend. Trust is only as strong as the person or thing That we are trusting. And notice there in that verse that Paul repeats himself. It's a bit lost in the English translation, but we might paraphrase it like this This righteousness of God comes through trust in Jesus Christ to all who trust. Now, I don't think here Paul is having a seniors moment. (laughs) The reason for the repetition is to emphasize that little word there all. All are under sin, and all need God's righteousness. So we read, this righteousness of God comes through trust in Jesus Christ to all who trust. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or made righteous freely by his grace. In other words, Paul teaches that all human beings are under sin. On their own, they can never meet God's righteous standard, but that God offers us a gift of righteousness regardless of our background, regardless of our race, but on the basis of our faith. Do you think the wonder of this needs to fall on some of us again? Maybe, just maybe, non-Christians would have less relish in pointing out our failures if we spoke more honestly about our need and God's generosities to us. If we honestly acknowledge that in the end... We all stand condemned before God and our only hope is his undeserved gift of righteousness. Well, how does God do this? There are two different images in the passage to explain how God can give righteousness. Two images, but both teach us that there is no other source than Christ. See there in verse 24, we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The word redemption simply means to set free by payment of a price. Now, in our world, redemption kind of belongs in God talk, but in the ancient world, redemption language was very common. It's the language of the marketplace. So it's used, for example, in the redemption of slaves. Sometimes in the ancient world, you became a slave because of bankruptcy. There were no bankruptcy laws like we have to protect you, So you would sell yourself, and maybe your family as well, into slavery. There was really nothing else that you could do. But suppose you have some very wealthy relative who decides to buy you back. He redeems you. That's what he does. You have been freed from slavery because a price has been paid. Note that as a slave, you can't buy back your freedom. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a slave in the first place. And Paul picks up on that language and says that Christians have been redeemed. We've been redeemed from our slavery to sin. And how does that work? Well, it's not a literal kind of redemption purchased with money. No, you see there in verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. That's a funny term, sacrifice of atonement, but it means to turn aside God's anger by an offering. Propitiation, sorry, sacrifice of atonement or propitiation is an image from the temple. An offering is being made to turn aside anger. And here it's Christ's death that turns away the wrath of God that we have earned. My daughter Lily, who's here this evening, showed me her gospel beads recently. I don't know whether you've seen these before. Have you seen these before? Um, She actually... I thought she'd made this. She tells me that she'd found it, but she understands the meaning. Um, And each bead actually symbolises some part of the Christian message. And uh, patiently, as only a daughter can with a a slower dad like me, um, she explained what all the different colours meant. Um, And she came to the the white bit and she explained, you know, Dad, the white means purity and it comes after the red colour, um, which is Jesus' death. And she turned to me and she said, You know, Dad, there is no white without the red. That's right, isn't it? There's there's no gift of righteousness without the cross. I wonder whether tonight's passage is starting to come together for you. How can people like you and I meet the standard with a righteous God whose eyes are too pure to look on evil? trying a bit harder, being determined to be good. The God we had offended sent his son. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't come into the world to meet with his friends. He came to die for his enemies. So what wonderful news is this, that this righteous God should give his son, his only son, to suffer and die. And he gave him, not hoping that he might be spared, but knowing that he would be despised, rejected and murdered. Christ paid the penalty that we deserved, a penalty that we could not pay ourselves. And now a righteousness from God is available to all who will trust in him. So finally, friends, who is this God that we must deal with? Answer, he is the righteous God who can make sinners righteous. Read with me from verse 26. He did it to demonstrate his justice or righteousness at the present time so as to be just or righteous and the one who justifies, makes righteous, those who have faith in Jesus. In the present era, the God we relate to is perfectly good but he is still able to pardon sinners. What we have seen tonight is not an abstract model. It's not only for new Christians... It's not for deep thinkers. It's not just for people from a particular denomination. It actually tells us something profound about God. It tells us something profound about the way we can have a relationship with Him. How would you deal with life when you had done something that you could not fix? That's the issue posed by one of my favourite stories from the last few years. It's a novel called Atonement and it's by British author Ian McEwan. The movie is also very good and it's probably worth getting out. It's set against the backdrop of England at the time of the Second World War and as a young girl, um, Bryony Tallis testifies falsely against a man and he goes to prison for five years. Not only is that a disaster for him, but it's also for her sister, who is in love with him. And as you follow the story, it seems that it'll be a traditional kind of story about love triumphing in the end. But we realise by the end that the lovers have been tragically killed and never reunited. And in fact, the novel itself is her attempt to atone. But there is no true atonement in the novel... In an atheistic universe, there can be no atonement, as the author himself acknowledges. Ultimately, there can only be unsuccessful human attempts to try and bend the truth, to try and rewrite the story. But friends, as we've seen, at the heart of the universe is the righteous God who has made atonement for us, a God who is just, who is utterly reliable, honest, compassionate and gracious and although we will never meet up to the standard in Christ he is able to give us the gift of righteousness perfectly meeting his standards and able to stand before him with all confidence friends it's a free gift take it it's a free gift take it let's pray Father we thank you for your mercy to us that in the Lord Jesus Christ you offer us a forgiveness a redemption a sacrifice of atonement that we simply couldn't achieve on our own. Father we pray for each person here tonight wherever they are in their life whether they know you or not. Father we pray that the meaning of this will become clear to them and we pray that each person might um, trust you might hear your word of forgiveness and welcome back um, and Father might, might enter your kingdom. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.